Welcome to this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health, on ReachMD XM157. Are cholesterol-reducing drugs making enough of a difference? And how many people do you really need to treat in order to have one good outcome? You are listening to a special segment on Heart Health on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. William Elliott, Professor of Preventive Medicine, Internal Medicine, and Pharmacology at Rush Medical College. Dr. Elliott was one of the original specialists in clinical hypertension designated by the American Society of Hypertension and has both researched and published extensively in the areas of cardiovascular clinical pharmacology. Dr. Elliott was also a contributor on five topics to the sixth report of the JNC. And welcome to the show, Dr. Elliott. Thank you. Well, there was a recent article in Business Week, and they were talking about that we are putting way, way too many people on statins and for very minimal outcomes. What do you think? I think the perspective is a little strange and perhaps even perhaps even a little misguided. Please go on. The good news is that, as you may know, just recently the American Heart Association has published its most recent heart and stroke facts numbers, and they're quite proud of the fact that we have achieved the 25% reduction in heart attack deaths and problems related to that. Before the estimated time of 2010, there's about a 25% reduction in heart attack deaths since the early 1990s now. And much of this is attributed to the stenting and the bypass operations and the better care in the CCU. But a lot of it has to do also with preventive therapies, including blood pressure drugs and aspirin and even statins. And I must say the big change that happened in medicine since 1990 really is the statins in terms of prevention, because these drugs were basically involved only in people with familial hyperdyslipidemia before about 1990, and since they have become much more widely used. Well, we're forgetting also about the fact that people are smoking less. Well, there's some truth to that. On the other hand, there's much more diabetes and there's much more obesity. So I tend to think that those three things, my two against one, may cancel things out there. Let's talk about something that is rarely brought up by drug reps in a doctor's office over lunch, which is the number needed to treat. Can you define that for our audience? Basically, the number needed to treat is a calculation done from a given study where placebo or no treatment is compared with an active intervention. And what it basically is is the reciprocal of the absolute risk reduction. So it's the number of people who have the event divided by the number at risk or the number randomized in each of the two groups, but it's the subtraction of those two numbers. And then one takes the reciprocal or one over that to get the number needed to treat. And then typically we round it up to five years because all of our studies are sadly not uh, truncated or last as long as five years. Sometimes they get done early. For example, the ASCOT lipid lowering arm was truncated about 3.2 years because it was no longer ethical to continue giving placebo because there was already a 36% drop in heart attack rate in those who got the statin. And some of our studies go a little bit longer than five years. And so to normalize things out so that we can talk across studies in a reasonable way, most people calculate the five-year needed to treat because five years is the average length of a clinical trial in most cardiovascular conditions. All right. So I am completely confused, as is everybody sitting in their car. What's a good NNT? What's a bad NNT? Basically, the lower the number, the better. Basically, if you look at the numbers, it means how many people does it take over five years to be treated? to save one cardiovascular event of your choice. Now, you can do five-year number needed to treat for heart attack, for death from heart attack or non-fatal MI, which is the most common. You can do it for stroke. You can do it for any cardiovascular event. All these numbers are a little different. But obviously, any small number is a good thing because it means that basically you only need to treat a small number of people to save one from the terrible event that you're trying to prevent. So what kind of needed-to-treat numbers do we see in statin trials? I was under the impression that it's 100 other countries that have looked at the data and done meta-analysis come up with an NNT of 200. It depends on the population. If you take very high-risk people, that is to say folks with very high cholesterols and no previous heart attack, or if you take people with previous heart disease, 
who are being treated with statin or placebo. For instance, the British Medical Research Council trial, the British Heart Foundation study, where they compared simvastatin and placebo. Under those circumstances, the NNT is rather small. If, on the other hand, you look at the American study, for example, all had lipid lowering, where they used a rather, uh, how should we say, not all that powerful statin and used usual care, which unfortunately got a fairly large number of people taking statins by the end of the study, the number needed to treat was very large. If I may uh, divert a little bit from just uh, statins, we can look at the range of numbers needed to treat in the population based on what kind of therapy you're giving and what kind of endpoint you're preventing. The lowest number needed to treat that I know of is the number needed to treat to prevent hypertension amongst folks with prehypertension based on the trophy data from the New England Journal April of 2006. And in that study, as you may remember, it only took four people to be treated for two years to save one from becoming hypertensive. That is actually pretty amazing and the lowest NNT that I've ever seen. What was the drug use? The drug was Candysartan, 16 milligrams. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment on heart health on the Clinician's Roundtable. My guest is Dr. William Elliott, preventive medicine, internal medicine, and pharmacology at Rush Medical College in Chicago, Illinois. And we're talking about the number needed to treat. Well, that sounds impressive. Four people compared to 100 people. That sounds like a good drug. Absolutely. If you look at the first statin study that was ever done to show a positive effect in primary prevention, that would be the West of Scotland Coronary Prevention Study, the number needed to treat for five years was 45. Also very nice, yeah, no question. The challenge is when you start getting into lower-risk individuals, when you start getting into situations where not everybody stays on placebo, but some cross over to the, the drug of choice that's given to the other group, uh, the numbers become rather large. In the all-hat uh, lipid-lowering arm, for example, to prevent heart attack, which was not the primary outcome of that study, but you can still do the calculation, the number is in excess of 250. What about looking at the number needed to treat to prevent mortality? Have we ever seen one for a statin trial that is of significance? Certainly the British Heart Foundation Medical Research Council trial with simvastatin in people with known coronary disease and other vascular disease was significant in preventing death. The number needed to treat, again, is on the order of three to 400. But the reality is that most of us would say that, and the healthcare economists certainly would agree, that prevention of death is probably not what you should be worried about because dead people don't cost any money. It's the non-fatal heart attack that costs so much money because of the subsequent health care costs of the survivor. And as a result, if you do economic analyses, the number needed to treat needs to be looked at only with regard to non-fatal MI. And furthermore, then you have to add on the additional costs related to ongoing health care after the second event. Let's move on to the recently released but much awaited, and you probably know what I'm going to ask, the enhanced trial. First, let me ask you, was this a significant trial? Was it even designed well? Well, that's a question that is controversial. Clearly, the idea of using a surrogate endpoint, the carotid intermedial medial thickness, is interesting, but hardly definitive. We have many occasions where the surrogate endpoint has been studied and not shown any benefit. In blood pressure world, for example, MIDAS was the original study where this exact endpoint was used, showed no significant difference, calcium channel blockers compared to a diuretic. And the good news is that nowadays we would say that certainly stroke, which was one of the endpoints there, not the primary one, was not different in MIDAS, whereas in meta-analyses, clearly there is some benefit in stroke prevention with calcium channel blockers that may or may not be related to crowded intimal medial thickness. The good news is that I've been telling my patients who have been coming at me and telling me that they don't want to take these pills now to lower their cholesterol because of this study, please remember that the study was done in young people with familial hyperlipidemia. And the sad fact is I only have two of those in my 2,800 patient people in the clinic. Right. It's like 0.1% of the population. So why did they do that? Why didn't they look at a cross-section of what we see in our offices, which is just mixed hyperlipidemias? Yeah, the good answer is that, how shall we say, it is easier to show an impressive fall in whatever parameter you're using 
if you start with a higher number. That's true if you're talking about hypertension. If you start with a group of 200 over 100, you'll get to see a nice drop in blood pressure. If you start with folks with familial hyperdyslipidemia and uh, treat them with a statin and other drugs, they will have an impressive fall in cholesterol and LDL levels that will be sort of unmatched in the general population simply because they start so high. Well, what do you think about the issue that they held the data and they didn't release it? And that kind of has caused a bad taste in my mouth. I think Again, the details of this are not yet public, but my suspicion is that they were waiting until they got the green light from the journal that would print their results. As you may know, in medicine today, we are governed in large part by the Inglefinger Rule, named after the former editor of the New England Journal, who said, if you release your information before I publish it, I will not publish your data. And that has made it very difficult for many to get early information that many people think is important out into the public realm because it has big implications for our financial markets. It has big implications for the lay media and lay press, but still the medical journals, which is really the court in which we try our cases, has declared that they will not allow publication of information before they get the opportunity to do so. And I believe that's the most likely explanation for why the data was, quote, held. I don't, I don't know the definition of held, but I've been told that they were a little bit slow. Well, I think the study ended in April of 06. Well, the reality is that sometimes the statisticians, even working 24 hours a day, take a great deal of time to get all of the numbers properly done. Things have to go through a number of revisions once they get to the journal, particularly in something this newsworthy. Many of the reviewers want to have the paper rewritten several times before they're happy with it. This process is not uncommonly taking six to eight months these days. Well, the meteor trial came out, and their results were not very impressive, and they released it, and there was no great media outcry. They just they did a study. It wasn't so great. It was an IMT study. They didn't really hit their primary endpoints, and we moved on. So I don't understand why Merck and sharing are, are held to a different standard. I don't know that either, but it is possible that the drug that was being tested was, how should we say, the initial large-scale, if it's not really large-scale, but the large-medium-sized scale study to look at an interesting endpoint. So it's the first, quote, outcomes data, unquote, that we have with a new drug, which is of interest for a number of reasons, not only the fact that they sell so much of it, but the fact that they have, how should we say, re-revolutionized advertisements with all these stories about how you get half your cholesterol from your food and then they show you a picture of an egg. It's a new way to, to consider this, but it may be that that's why it's garnered such attention. All right, so have you changed your prescribing habits as a result of Enhance? Oh, certainly not. I have only two people with familial dyslipidemia, and I treat them uh, to get their cholesterol down as best I can. One of them, unfortunately, is plasmapheresis, so that's just the way it is. So going from an LDL of 100 down to an LDL of 70 is still uh, paramount importance to you, no matter how you can get there. In people who have very high risk, recent coronary events, et cetera, et cetera, that would absolutely be true. Back to statins and number needed to treat, if it truly is 100, you have to put 100 people on a statin to prevent one non-fatal MI. Is that correct? I would say over the entire world's population, that's probably true. But again, remember that the benefit is totally proportional to the absolute risk of the individual. So if you have an older person who's higher risk by virtue of age, if you have a person who has very high cholesterol, familial dyslipidemia, if you have a person who's had a previous coronary event or vascular disease, these people will all benefit probably 10 times as much as your average 45-year-old guy with no other problems except his cholesterol is too high. Well, as a primary care physician, and, you know, the entire world has been convinced that cholesterol is a disease, high cholesterol is a disease. And so they're coming in, and they want their cholesterol treated, and every journal and every coalition and society is telling us to put them on a statin. How do I decide to not put them on a statin? That's a tough question, because it involves such calculations as the cost-effectiveness of doing so, 
which as I mentioned is moderately expensive given the numbers needed three times the cost of the medicine per year, not to mention the cost of monitoring the liver function tests, et cetera, et cetera, and the extra visits that entails. Uh, but the second piece is that you have to factor into that the opportunity cost. In other words, God forbid you don't do it and the person goes on and gets a heart attack. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to get a registered letter from the local attorney and that's going to cost you and your insurance company $3 million. So the question is when you factor that in, it may in fact be cost effective to consider early treatment of cholesterol in folks who are young who don't get their cholesterols down with dietary means. Dr. William Elliott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment on heart health on the Clinician's Roundtable on XM157. To comment or to listen to our full library of podcasts, please visit us at reachmd.com. If you register yourself with the promo code RADIO, you'll get six months free of streaming ReachMD that you can listen to on your computer at home or at work. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.